Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this season of Epiphany. And uh, Lord, we pray now as we start this series looking at the person of Jesus, that you would give us an epiphany, reveal to us the glory of Jesus, we pray. Through these words, through all the words we'll hear over the next few weeks, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's um, a great joy to be preaching at the start of Epiphany. And like Peter said, Epiphany is this sort of odd time. It's sort of from the end of Christmas to 6th. Yesterday, I took down my Christmas tree yesterday. I don't know if you did the same yesterday. And it goes right through to the presentation of Christ in the temple. But we're going to kind of carry this season through to Lent. And uh, Epiphany, as Peter said, it celebrates um, a couple of things. The visit of the Magi, the wise men. Uh, it celebrates the baptism of Christ and it celebrates the wedding at Cana in, in the start of John's Gospel. But we're going to focus today, this morning, on this passage here, the visit of the Magi. Now, was anyone ever in a nativity play a wise man or wise woman or one of the kings? Anybody put up your hand? A few of you, yeah. I don't know what that says about us, that only a few of us were. Obviously, only a few of us got selected. Anybody an angel in a nativity? Yeah, I just want to include you as well. And was anyone Mary? We had a, we had, Jane was a Mary for us uh, this Christmas. Yeah, well done. Fantastic. So, um, so you might have played the wise men. And I love this time of year. I like Epiphany because it brings to mind my favorite sort of Christmas joke that I got on the front of a Christmas card this year. A picture, you might have seen this, of the wise men kneeling down with their gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh to the baby Jesus. And there's a speech bubble coming out of one of the wise men's mouth. And it says... Just to let you know, this is for birthday and Christmas, okay? <laughs> Which is my favorite Christmas joke of all. Um, but it's a slightly sort of odd passage, this, in lots of ways. And I, the question I really want to ask is, why does Matthew put it here? Now, that's not to say that it didn't happen. I think there's really good historical reasons for thinking that this really did happen. This sounds like the sort of thing that would happen. These strange characters, these magi, the word is translated, were kind of like the religious civil servants of the day. And they were, the word we might use today is kingmakers. They were really important people. In the empires of the day, was it the Parthians, the Persian Empire, um, before that the Babylonians, the, the, the um, magi were the people who kind of made the kings. You needed them on board if you wanted to be king. And so it makes sense that Herod, who was in this risky political situation, he feared for his kingdom. He was a very, very violent individual who was desperate to cling on to power. When these wise men appeared, he needs them on side in order to stay king. That seems to be what's going on here. And just like Putin's Russia or Assad's Syria, there's kind of all sorts of political games going on. There were spying and all sorts. So it makes a lot of sort of historical sense for the time that this happened. This seems like the sort of thing that would happen. And so when they go and they don't make Herod king, but they, they go to honor and adore this baby king, it really says something astonishing. But I want to look today at some reasons as to why Matthew might put this here at the start of his gospel. Of all the things he had, Luke doesn't have it in his account. And Matthew doesn't have the shepherds, he has the wise men. Why might he have it? And I just want to say two things this morning as to why I think Matthew has this. And these two things hopefully help us to see something of the truth of Jesus Christ, which is what Epiphany is all about. So the first thing is I think Matthew has it here to remind us of the breadth of Jesus' good news. That's the first thing, the breadth of Jesus' good news. And the second thing is Matthew wants to tell us something about the pattern of that good news. The first thing is the breadth, and the second thing is the pattern. Now, the breadth, first of all, and I'm not going to spend long here, 
Um, At the very start of Matthew's gospel, he has this story of these individuals. There might not be three. It's only three because gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We've sort of said there were three. There's probably quite a big number of them, a large collection of them. These individuals come, it says, we're told, from the east, verse 1 in your Bibles, chapter 2, verse 1, come from the east. In other words, they are non-Jewish people. Now, that might not seem very significant to us today, non-Jewish people. But Matthew's gospel is a gospel all about the Jewish faith and how Jesus Christ fulfills the Jewish faith and the Jewish promises. Jesus is Jewish. His first followers are Jewish. Matthew makes really clear his mum and his dad are Jewish. And it's a Jewish gospel in one sense. It's all about how Jesus is constantly fulfilling prophecy. And at the very start of the gospel, we have this account of non-Jews coming to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you jump forward with me to the end of Matthew's Gospel, so if you go to chapter 28, um, flip forward a few pages, chapter 28, it's on page 1000 of the church Bibles. And uh, at the end of that, in in verse 19, Jesus is on top of the mountain, he's risen from the dead, and he's talking to his disciples, and he says to them, therefore, verse 19, go and make disciples of, what's the words there? All nations, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in the middle of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15, we have a story, don't worry about turning to it now, but in the middle there, first 50, chapter 15, a story of Jesus meeting with a woman who here is called a Canaanite woman, sometimes called a Syrophoenician woman, another individual who is not Jewish. And so you've got in Matthew's Gospel the beginning, the end, and then in the middle, stories of Jesus's good news reaching those people who are outside of the Jewish faith. And it's as if Matthew really wants us to see that although this is a very Jewish story, it's a story for the whole world. And it's a reminder to us that whatever God is doing with his people, forming his people, shaping his people, changing his people, it's a story that is always for those beyond the fold, if you like, beyond. And when we think about as a church, about us being, we sometimes talk about being a missional church, these verses are really important to us because they remind us that whatever God is doing with us here as a people in St. Nick's, forming us, changing us as a people, that we might become more dependent, expectant, and changed, all of that in these 40 weeks, that all of that is not for us only, but is for the city and the world. Um, that God, whatever God does here is, is for those. And, and Matthew's gospel reminds us of that. And so I think the first thing that Matthew wants us to see is the breadth of the good news. And, and in our story of St. Nick's, you know, that's going to look like all sorts of things, isn't it? There's a breadth of moving beyond for the city, for the marketplace. There's a breadth of moving beyond for the northeast and Durham. And there's also a breadth of moving beyond for the whole world. This has been a church that, through its mission and ministry, through individuals coming and then being sent out, has blessed the whole world. All nations. This church has been connected to the the good news going out to all the nations. And I think that's the first thing that Matthew wants us to see, the breadth of the good news. The second thing, though, is about the pattern of the good news. So the breadth of the good news and the pattern of the good news. And uh, if we get that slide up on uh, the screen there, and I'm just going to hold this up for the rest of this short time we've got together. I think in this story we see a pattern that really is the pattern of the way the good news kind of works. That there is a sign given to the wise men, a star is shown to them. There's a journey then towards Jesus Christ, a decision to journey towards, 
There's worship and adoration when they get there. They bow down, they're overjoyed, they bow down and they give him their gifts. And then there's transformation. And I think what this gives us, Matthew's giving us, is a sort of pattern for the way the good news works even today uh, and has worked through 2,000 years of, of Christian history. A sign is given, a decision is made to journey towards or move towards, there's worship and adoration and then we're changed. And Really, if you think about it, it's not so much a kind of like linear thing, but it's a, it's a circular thing that goes on and on and on. Whether you've been a Christian a long time, or whether you're very new to this, or whether you're just starting out on that journey, um, the, it goes on and on and on. As soon as we're transformed, we go back again, we, God gives us signs. So I just want to talk a little bit about that pattern, the pattern of the good news. They see, as I say, the sign. Uh, we saw that in uh, verse 2. Where is the one who has been born? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So a sign is given. They journey towards Jesus. Um, in verse 1, they're journeying from the east, from a long way away, in other words. And then when they speak to Herod, they go from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. There's this movement, this decision, if you like, towards. Now, they could have received the sign and not bother to journey. Right? What, a lovely, what an amazing thing. Let's go back to our offices and reflect on it together. But they don't. They see the sign and they make the decision to journey towards Jesus. And then when they get to it, there, as I say, they are, they come, uh, they worship him, they see the star, they're overjoyed. On coming to the house, verse 11, they saw the child with his mum and they bowed down and they worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. Wealthy treasures, the best they had. They adore this baby boy. They honour him as king. And there's all sorts of significance in those presents that they give him. And then they're transformed. And I'm, I'm really struck by the wording that Matthew uses. Verse 12, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they return to their country, here's the words, by another route, by another route. And again, when the gospel writers write something, they're not messing around. They don't come back the same way they came. They don't leave the same as when they arrived. They're transformed. And I, like I say, I think this is what Matthew is showing us here is a really simple way of understanding the way that Jesus changes our lives. A really simple pattern of the good news. Signs, journey towards, worship and adoration and transformation. So signs. I'm not sure how God speaks to you and what sort of signs he's put in your life. Big things, small things. Um, little indications that God is there. Little indications that God is with you. Like I say, it might be really dramatic things, like a star in the sky. It might be, as Mary had, an angel speaking to you. I was speaking to somebody who's been working in Iran recently. And uh, she told me that the, she's seen over the last few years about 400 people she's known who Jesus has revealed himself to them in a dream. And these dreams are slightly different, but there's lots of similarities between them. Jesus revealing in a dream. It could be that. It could be that dramatic. But it might be more subtle. Over Christmas, we talked a lot about the fact that all good things come from God. The sign that God might be giving you might be that when you sat around that Christmas table with family, it just felt good. It wasn't perfect. We know that family's messy, but it just felt good. And that's just a little indication that God is, is, is there. And the question then is, what do we do with that sign? What do we do with it? What do we do with that reminder of the goodness of God, of the kindness of God? It might be when you're out walking, a wintry walk or an autumnal walk through Durham, and you just think, wow, this is amazing. Now, that's open to everybody, and what's interesting here, isn't it, is that God is revealing himself not to those in the church, if you like, not to Jews, but he's revealing himself to those outside. It's everybody. Paul says in Acts 17, God is not far from any of us. If you speak to any of your friends, 
uh, at work or at college or at university, at school, you'll know that there's little things in their lives that bring them joy, that bring them life. All of these are signs. And the question is, what do we do with them? And what the, the, the wise men do, the, the magi, is they make the decision to journey towards. Journey towards. And we journey towards Christ in lots of ways, not like the magi necessarily of moving across the world, though God might call you to that. <clears throat> we journey towards God in praying, in making a decision to worship, in getting up early to do our quiet time, in reading our Bible, in turning up here on a Sunday morning. All, any commitment we make, in other words, any commitment we make to go find Jesus, to speak to a friend, to pray with somebody, any, any sort of little step we take is our journeying towards Jesus. So here's the sign. God speaks to us and reminds us of his power, his goodness, his glory, whatever it is, and then we make the decision. Okay, I'm going to go to the source of that goodness. I'm going to go and find where that goodness has come from. And so I, I seek to find Jesus. I seek to move towards Jesus. That's the journey. And the question for us at the start of this year maybe is, how will we continue to journey towards Christ? How will we make the decision on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, to journey towards Christ? And then we move towards him and we find ourselves in worship and adoration. The wise men, as it says, were overjoyed. They kneel down, they give their gifts. What does it look like for you to worship Christ today? That's why we're here, isn't it, as a church? Every Sunday we gather. Not because, you know, so much of our world is functional, isn't it? You know, I went into the supermarkets over Christmas and you sort of, you buy your stuff, you give your money. I give my thing, you give me my thing. I, I've got a new phone comp company, you know, I give them my money, they provide a service for me. Life is sort of functional. Worship is not functional in that sense. Worship is us giving ourselves to God, saying, God, you are the greatest thing. You are the most wonderful thing. That's our worship. That's why we gather every Sunday. What does it look like for you to worship? And then transformation. Our lives are changed. We go in a different direction. We become more of who God made us to be. And that word repentance, you know, we say confession every week. Repentance. Repentance is a directional word. It means to turn around, to go in a different direction, just like the mage I did, to go in a different direction. We're changed, we're transformed, we're, we're metanoid, we're, we change around, we go in a different way. And, um, you know, if we're very, very new to this, those changes might be quite big changes. As we come to know Christ, there might be things in our lives that we need to give up and say no to, and things we take up. Our lives might look very different. If we've been doing this a long time, those changes might not be so drastic, but they'll be just as deep and just as important, the changes we make. So... <clears throat> Signs are given to us, God reminding us of his goodness, his beauty. We then make a decision to journey towards Christ. We worship and adore him, and we're transformed, and we're changed. But, but, and I want to end with this. There is a big caveat, isn't there? There is a big caveat to all of this. I think the wise men, when they come to this, to this wherever it is that the, in Bethlehem, the, the mum and the baby are, there's something that must have surprised them. You know, these wise men, these magi, they travel around the empires of the world and they go to the courts of the kings and they spend time there. And so they're used to the power games and they're used to the grandeur and the might of palaces and emperors and their empires. And they turn up to find this king. And it's so interesting to me the language that Matthew uses in verse 11. On coming to the house, it's a house, it's not a palace. 
they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. What do they find when they come to Jesus? They don't find might and grandeur. They find a baby and his mum. That's what they find. And they bow down and worship him. And the phrase that was in my head as I was praying through this, what I was going to say this morning, the phrase that came through my head, I felt God say this thing. He said, however far you journey towards Christ, it's nothing compared to the journey that God has made to you. However far you journey towards Christ, it's nothing compared to the journey that God has made to find you. And I think that's what they discover. They've traveled a long way. They've given up a lot. They've risked a lot to come to this baby boy. And what they find is that the God of heaven, the God of glory who created all of this, has been willing to be born as a baby boy out of love. That God has taken the journey of stepping down from heaven and coming to be born as a baby boy. As we said at Christmas, you know, the transcendent becoming a baby, the divine becoming dependent the holiness of God held as a baby boy. And so our journey towards Christ, you know, the danger is we think that we're the ones always moving towards God and we've sort of got to make the effort. I've got to keep going to God. I've got to get up early and I've got to pray and all of those things. And we forget that actually what we're doing when we're doing that is simply receiving the gift that God has already given us. Like being thirsty and drinking from a tap. You know, when you're really, really thirsty and you drink from a tap, you get a glass of water. It's not much of an effort. You simply receive the gift of that water and it quenches your thirst. Or if somebody gives you a gift and you hold out your hands, it doesn't feel like an effort to hold out your hands and receive that gift. It's simply to receive. And God has stepped down out of heaven to find you and me out of love. They thought they were seeking the king and it turns out that the king was seeking them. And so our journey is a journey towards God, yes, but it's actually a journey to receive from him. So we're going to pray for a moment uh, before we come to the table. And uh, at the start of this new year, it would be great just to pray for how it is that this year we might receive from Jesus again. What are we going to put into our lives that mean that we can receive from Jesus again and again? How do we sort of receive that living water uh, of Christ again and again and again? So let's just take a moment to be still. And I'm going to be quiet for 30 seconds or so. And just ask the question, Lord, what are you saying to me from this this morning? What are you calling me to this morning? And um, we said that this 40 weeks was about three sort of areas of our lives, that ourselves as individuals, uh, us in the church, and then us in our circles. And so I'm just going to go through each one of those, and as I do, just pray, Lord, what is it you're calling me to? Is there a new practice, a new habit? Is there something you want me to take up or to let go of that would mean that I would be able to receive from you, Lord Jesus, again? So in terms of our own lives, ourselves, what are the things that God is calling you to? Is it a commitment to get up early? Is it a commitment to 
exercise more or, or change something in our lives? What might God be asking to you? How will you receive from Jesus again this year? And the second area is the church. How are we as a church committing to pursuing Jesus, to receiving the gift of Jesus in our life together as a church? And what's your particular role in that? Is it to serve? Is it to give? Is it to step back from something, to step into something? How might God be calling you in the church's life to receive from Jesus this year? And then third is our circles, our groups, our small groups, our clubs, our societies, maybe a sports team. How is God calling you to have Jesus at the centre of that, to receive the gifts of Christ, the gifts of Jesus in that space?